Okay, we are back to the handout entitled Salvation and Atonement in the Bible. And we are slowly working through Isaiah. I hope to finish Isaiah today. We are in chapter 57. So if you, if you turn to page 6 in your handout and down just over the halfway point. So we're looking at chapter 59 verses 9 to 20. And what we usually do is to take turns reading. So, actually, let's start with verse. Let's start with uh, verse one, actually, and we will we'll, we will read to verse twenty. And uh, Keith, would you read the first five verses, please? Fifty-nine. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy that he it cannot hear, but your iniquities has separated you, separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice. Not any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Okay. Tara, you want to read the next five verses? Their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. Verse 15, please. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. Okay. Um, read verses. Uh, read to verse twenty. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and an helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay. 
Furator's adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay, recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. Okay, um, we're going to try to put together this with some other places in Isaiah that I think are helpful. But uh, first of all, how would you characterize salvation in these verses? Um, I'll read verse 16 again. It says, And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm, the arm of the Lord, or the Lord's strength, brought salvation unto him and his righteousness is sustained him so we at least one interpretation can be that Christ's righteousness is what will sustain us okay uh, so we have uh, God's arm no one is to, is there to help him so God is the one who brings the victory of salvation it's not any other being in the universe that can bring us salvation. God brings us salvation. And he does it by, uh, it, it, he's upheld by his righteousness, but he also puts righteousness on as an armor. We won't understand that fully till we get to Romans. But um, what does victory have to do with righteousness in this passage? Uh, anybody? If you look up at the past, at verses above, it's, it lists all the sins of Israel, right? And it, it says, you know, the issue isn't God's power to save, right? Uh, the issue is that you have separated yourselves from God by your sins. And, and look at what these sins are. Murder, lies, and malice. People have malice toward one another, and they're not honest. They don't speak the truth. They're they're out to get what they want at other people's disadvantage and and their discomfort. And it keeps mentioning malice throughout here. They they really wish evil on people, and they're violent. And it says verse eight: they don't know the way of peace. There is no justice in their paths. They make their roads crooked, and no one who walks in them knows peace. Because of all this, then, verse 9, justice is far from us and righteousness beyond our reach. So everything that's in the verses before, the verses that we deal about with salvation, have to do with unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of the people. They can't seem to think a peaceful thought there's no peacemakers among them there's there's no um, love for anyone um, beyond their own nose and and you know people who use who do malice who think malice uh, against other people do not have even love for themselves you can't you, malice takes out all love all love in the heart. So this is a situation of unrighteousness, and this is why righteousness and um, justice are so important. Uh, if we go down 
uh, to verse 11. All of us growl like bears. Everybody's defending their own turf. When, when you enter malice into the picture and violence and bloodshed and, and all those things, it's a very unsafe environment. And so we, it says in verse 11, we expect justice, but there is none. We await salvation, but it is far from us. What does justice have to do with salvation? One scripture that Isaiah wrote, he says, he said that Zion shall, Zion shall be redeemed with judgments and her converse with righteousness. So, at least in, in that context, it, it may be simply saying that, you know, that God's people being corrected by God will save them. That could be one interpretation. Okay, that could be one interpretation. Um, another, another facet to justice, and, and the word judgments there is probably mishpat. I, I don't know what passage you're referring to, but uh, it's probably mishpat in the Hebrew. And mishpat in the Hebrew is not necessarily retributive justice. It is usually distributive justice or restorative justice, to use a modern term. And, and restorative justice, I think, is extremely biblical uh, because you look at the book of Judges and every judge is really a savior. They're a deliverer of Israel from their enemies. Now, of course, in the process of delivering their enemies, there's there's some there's a downside to that. Uh, but the primary focus of justice is to deliver, particularly in the court, for the oppressed who are being they have a wrongful suit brought against them. In other words, they don't deserve that suit, but it's being brought against them. Or the cause they have that needs to be adjusted is not adjusted fairly and they need someone to deliver them to judge their case, as it were. The justice there has to do with restorative justice, compensatory justice, uh, making right, wrong things right and restoring estranged, uh, estranged relationships. That's the heart really, of Old Testament justice. Let me, let me do a little history on justice in the ancient Near East. If you study laws, or I should say court cases, before the Neo-Assyrian period, especially the Old Babylonian period, but I would guess into the Neo-Assyrian period, there's indications in the cases themselves that the goal that was to be reached was reconciliation between two estranged parties. That was their goal. It, because it, every, not every case, but a lot of cases end with the words uh, that so-and-so and so-and-so agreed on the matter that, that the judges decided. By the Neo-Babylonian period, which is uh, about several hundred years later, the court cases no longer have that. The goal of the court there is to reach a verdict and to establish penalties. You can see a definite shift, can't you? Early courts are, are trying to reach reconciliation between two estranged parties. Later courts are trying to establish a verdict and, and determine the penalties that are to be ex, uh, projected. Most of the Hebrew Bible is pre-Neo-Babylonian in its constructs and its perceptions of justice. 
Uh, and so justice is is attempting to right what is wrong, to bring about righteousness, and and to to conciliate two estranged parties. In the case of Israel and God, it's to draw God back to Israel. And we'll come to a text that suggests that. So, so verse 15, in the middle of the verse, the Lord looked and was upset at the absence of justice. This is not retributive justice here. This is the justice of righteousness, the kind of justice that is fair. Seeing there was no one and astonished that no one would intervene. In other words, he left, he le- he had us be the ones who do, do justice, right? We were supposed to carry this out, but nobody did. So, his arm brought victory, upheld by righteousness, putting on righteousness as an armor and helmet of salvation on his head, putting on garments of vengeance. Now he has to use something else. And, and the question is, what does the garments of vengeance mean? And and the parallel to this is wrapping himself in a cloak of zeal. What does God do when he takes vengeance? Well, he will repay according to their actions. Wrath to his foes, retribution to his enemies, retribution to the coastlands, so that those in the west will fear the Lord's name and those in the east will fear God's glory. What does it mean to repay according to their actions? It's just a very distributive justice principle. Like, it's the natural thing that's going to happen. Because you did that, then you are going to have to pay for it. Your actions are going to bring about the retribution. And God's not going to restrain those actions. He's not going to restrain those consequences any longer. Um, Is this similar to when in the sanctuary at the end of intercession, um, I think even Ellen White talks about, standing up and he puts on his cloak his robes of vengeance in other words the seven last plagues are falling and it's not it's his wrath that has allowed these to happen in that the the, the action in revelation is poured out right it's poured out it's let go it's he's let him go and this is the demonstration of what those that are righteous have been sealed and those that are not that have not been sealed will understand finally and whoever else is looking on um, will finally understand what the adversary would have done if he'd have been in control. That that's that's our, the savior changes from being intercessor to directing and allowing the robes of vengeance. Is that okay, Keith? Um, I, I'm, I'll just tell you where my mind is kind of headed in terms of vengeance. Um, I know that if we uh, if we have a lot of negative self-talk, um, that our emotional brain, our right brain, interprets that as a command. And after many years, um, that command will start to manifest itself in our body, and often many autoimmune types of, of uh, uh, symptoms are a result of that uh, continuous negative thinking where the, the brain finally says, I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you, I'm going to obey. <laughs> so kind of a, um, you know, vengeance is something that we can speak to ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, I 
can't remember her name. She mentioned um, um, the last the plagues. Um, sometimes I think of them as a corporate autoimmune. <laughs> <laughs> the whole world becomes the whole world well. The wrong. I don't know. I think I've told this before. I know I told it in my classes, but I don't know if I've told it here. My mother had an interesting experience happen one time, and I don't think she'll mind my telling this story. She uh, lived on what the contractor who built their house called Half Dome. <laughs> it was solid granite underneath their house. And she, they had to bring in soil. Uh, and this was uh, in uh, right up against the Sierra National Forest and in uh, the Oakhurst, um, that, below Oakhurst, but in that general area, Bass Lake and Oakhurst. And... She, my mom is a gardener. Wherever she goes, she plants flowers, she plants shrubbery, she, she loves a garden, and she has a really green thumb. I mean, just, she makes it look like a park. So she was uh, creating her park in the backyard, and the deer kept coming and eating. And so she went to the nursery and said, what will deer not eat? And so they gave her all these plants, and she took them home, and she planted them, and the deer ate them anyway. <laughs> And uh, she got really mad. And so every time a deer would come near, she'd run out of the house and yell and scream. And sometimes she'd take pot lids and, and kettles and, and bang away at the deer. The deer would run off, and then they'd come back. And, and this went on repeatedly, and, and nothing grew. Nothing would grow out there. And she began to get really frustrated. She tried everything, and nothing would grow. And finally, one day she started thinking, you know, I am so negative to those deer. I am constantly going out and yelling at them, and I'm, I hate them. I'm, I'm very frustrated with them. Maybe that's why nothing's growing. Maybe I should just let the deer eat what they want and just plant more. So she did. That backyard began to flourish. The deer munched happily. And by the end of the story, <laughs> my mother was throwing out apple peelings to the deer and making sure they had water. And, and everything was fine. I maintain that violence destroys nature. Violence destroys everything in its path. So when God repays according to their deeds or according to their actions, he doesn't have to do anything on top of what they're already done to themselves and to nature and to all the whole world. All he has to do is stop protecting us from ourselves. That's all he has to do. And the reason he stops protecting us from ourselves is because that's the last ditch stand God has to hopefully get us to wake up and realize what we're doing to ourselves. Praise the Lord for promises, you know, that are comforting to us as believers. You know, we can um, mention certain themes, you know, seven plagues can be, you know, a frightening topic, you know, to some. But thankfully, you know, there's promises like um, in the Word where it says the angel of his presence saved them. You know, and carried them in days of old. You know, or you know, Psalms 34, verse 7: The angels of the Lord encamp around with those who fear Him, and delivereth them. You know, and early early writings is in along that theme of the seven plagues. She mentions that those who those who have received the seal of God have a protective covering. You know, so like, I mean, first of all, to be sealed, we will have. We have to accept Christ's righteousness and and. He has to live, he has to manifest that righteousness through us.
so that when probation is, is closed and and the seven plagues will will fall, you know, mm-hmm. soon after, we will we will be okay. It'll be we'll be fine, you know. So there, there's mm-hmm. comfort in those promises. You know, he says, "I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees Him not, neither knoweth Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless; I will come to you. So praise the Lord for His Word, because we will be okay, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another thing in the aspect of fear is if we realize that God isn't doing these things to us; He is the Savior. He's the one we come to, to save us. If we're not afraid of God, we are, and we trust him. We put our trust in him because what God wants, and and this is what we've looked at with uh, previous scriptures, what he wants is our trust. If we trust in him, we won't be out there hurting other people. It's just, it's our absence of trust that makes us so defensive and so determined to have things our way and, and to be destructive toward other people. We're going to jump down to Isaiah 63, 1 to 6, and 6, 7 to 9, those two passages, and then we'll come back to 61. And uh, it's your turn, Kim, to read. Who is it that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bozran? Um, this is the glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel and thine garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the wine press alone, and of the people there are there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all of my raiment. For the day of vengeance is mine in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury. And I will bring down their strength to the earth. I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed upon us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel with which he hath bestowed upon them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindness. For he, ha- for he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. And in their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved him. And in his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and they bear them, and, and he bare them and carried them in all the days of old. It ends on a beautiful note, doesn't it? What do you do in the, with the middle? I have pressed out the vat by myself from the people no one was with me. I stomped them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath. Their blood splashed on my garments and stained all my clothing because I intended a day of vengeance. The year of my deliverance had arrived. When is this fulfilled? That's the question. When is this fulfilled? So what do we do with uh, all this wrath? When is this fulfilled? 
sounds like the motif of the cross. What makes you think so? Um, all that's taking place there is uh, uh, the day of vengeance. It's in my heart. The year of my redeemed has come. So mm-hmm. Prophetic mm-hmm. implication. Mm-hmm. Uh, none to help. Mm-hmm. I think that's why Ellen White does apply this to the cross, uh, this passage. So who did Jesus slaughter at the cross? He slaughtered sin. He trampled people with his feet. This can't be literal. The day of his vengeance was at the cross. When And, and the question is, how did Jesus die? What is it that took his life? We can say our sin... How did that work? How did sin take his life? How did it react on him? Separation from his father. He separated him from his father? She said, um, Ellen White said that he couldn't see beyond the grave. Eternal separation. Yeah. Okay. So separation from his father. What is the actual mechanism that caused Jesus' death? Broken heart. Where do we get that? Well, if you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. We tend to glide right by that. But it's very, very literally true. He is dying from emotional agony. And later, he has this sweaty blood coming out of his pores and his forehead which there is a medical term for called hematridrosis, hematridrosis, which is uh, where bleeding in the brain occurs due to severe depression. Uh, I had a student with that condition I mentioned last time. So this is how Jesus died. This is how vengeance is exhibited. This is his deliverance. How did exhibiting the vengeance of God and what it means Bring our deliverance. There's, there's uh, wide, vastly opposite answers to that question available. Um, anybody? Um, uh, just thinking about the heart, uh, the the very base of of what we call or what the Bible calls the heart, science calls the, our our right brain, our emotional brain, but at the base of the brain are our attachments. And if we break attachments, which are designed to be permanent, uh, we will die. We, we will, our reality will be completely skewed, and we will sink into uh, uh, oblivion uh, without attachments. And um, uh, certainly we see an attachment bond breaking between father and son. And he, uh, uh, the natural result of that is... Um, an agonizing death. Which explains why science has also done studies that show that infants who have every physical need met but who are not loved die. So vengeance, is it possible that vengeance is what happens when we separate from the source of love? See, I, I believe that we are dependent solely on the love of God to live. 
I believe that this Holy Spirit uh, mediates the love of God to each person on earth that allows him to do so. I believe that due to the Spirit's presence, we are surrounded by the love of God, whether we discern it or not. And if we shut out that Spirit and wrap ourselves in hate and malice, all the things that we read about in, in Isaiah 59... Uh, the result is that we have shot out, we can no longer attach to the love of God as long as we are in that state. And so we are dependent on that. And so my love for anyone and their love for me is actually an outgrowth of that, being surrounded by the Spirit of God and being and having that work in my heart and my life. And being able to love others accordingly to how God loves me. Uh, so I, so I believe, you know, we, t- we, t- we tend to detach ourselves from God. Our, our scientific world, as important as it is, has tended to lead us to detach from making God as any part of this equation of love. Uh, but the uh, Bible teaches we love because He first loved us. As we can only love to the extent that we have been loved by another, and all love comes from God. We only can love to the extent that he loves us, that we allow him to love us. So the vengeance, then, is this natural outgrowth. It isn't God's vengeance. It's the vengeance we perceive in God. And and, and because of our consequences, we, of course, blame him for what's happened. It's it's all about how how we perceive God and we're going to come to a verse that tells us that. And I thought it was in this passage. Okay, the day of vengeance. If we t- transport this to the second coming of Jesus. The Bible uses different analogies for how the wicked die and the brightness of his coming. The righteous are transported to heaven. The wicked die on the planet. How do they die? It says in, in, in Second Thessalonians that the breath they are slain by the breath of his mouth. When does God breathe when Jesus comes? When he breathes life into the righteous. And that breath that brings life brings destruction. And, and then uh, the Bible also uses fire, that, that God dwells in everlasting burnings, that he is a consuming fire. The righteous live in that fire. That fire is life to them. That fire, according to Exodus 33 and 34, is the glory of his character, which is love. And they live in that. The wicked, they're consumed by it. Does God change? Does he have two sides to him, one side for the wicked and one for the righteous? No. What has changed is the perception of the wicked toward God. They perceive all that as vengeance and hatred and all of that because they have lived in that negative picture of God for so long They that their perception determines the outcome. That's another flip side of, I think, what you were saying, Keith. Okay, let's go back to Isaiah. Oh, did you have... Um, going back to how we detach ourselves, is this why the unpardonable sin is, it, because the unpardonable sin that I understand, if I understand it correctly, is that we shut out the spirit 
and so therefore we, we were dying. We ascribe it to Satan. And, and, and really seeing a wrong picture of God and, and seeing him as a vengeful God is a way of ascribing his love to Satan Ooh. and ascribing the spirit to Satan. Yeah. It, it, it's dangerous to do that, especially if we do it knowingly. Now, if we do it ignorantly, that's another thing. But if we do it knowingly, we ascribe the love of God to Satan and, and his attributes, and we do it knowingly. That is really the same thing. Because God can shed his love all around us and we simply are immune to it. We have shut ourselves out from it completely. I know this is getting scary, huh? Let's go to something very positive. Isaiah 61. (laughs) And um, I'll start reading here. I'll read. um, I'll go ahead and read these verses. The Lord's God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of God's, the Lord's favor and a day of vindication for our God. I bet you have vengeance. I didn't bring my Hebrew Bible to look this up. Um, is this Nakam <laughs> or is this Sadak? Uh, verse 2. Mm-hmm. Acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. Mm-hmm. Mine has the day of vindication. Uh-huh. Yeah, most most versions are, are vengeance. Uh, my guess is the word is Nakam and my translation, which is the Common English Bible, probably has looked at this in context hopefully did a careful exegesis and discovered that nakam can possibly mean vengeance is what I'm guessing. But you're saying that it's vindication. Vindication. Okay. Uh, in, in my version. I don't know. I, that's going to be disputed probably. <laughs> to comfort all who mourn, to provide for Zion's mourners, to give them a crown in place of ashes, a oil of joy in place of mourning, a mantle of praise in place of discouragement, They shall be called oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord to glorify himself. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore formerly deserted places, and they will renew ruined cities, places deserted in generations past. And now starting in verse 8. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and dishonesty. I will faithfully give them their wage and make them an enduring covenant. Their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people blessed by the Lord. I will surely rejoice in the Lord. My heart is joyful because of my God, because he has clothed me with clothes of victory, wrapped me in a robe of righteousness and like a bridegroom with a priestly crown. How, how do you like that? Priestly crown. And like a bride adorned in jewelry, as the earth puts out its growth, and as a garden grows its seed, so the Lord will grow righteousness and praise before all the nations. Now Jesus quotes this first; these first four verses, or actually the first two verses, and applies it to himself, right? Remember in Nazareth? They handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And he got up to read, 
Did he read all of these verses? He stopped at the first half of verse 2. The Lord's God's spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for the captives, liberation for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where he stopped. No vengeance. Why do you think he did that? Because that wasn't his job at that time, possibly. Well, that's one interpretation of this. He's probably dealing with a mindset that that's their mindset of of God's vengeance. Yeah. He reads vengeance. They're going to think immediately, get those Romans. Right? He didn't come to do that. But there's something beyond that. Ellen White suggests that they love to dwell on this, on the vengeance of God. And Jesus deliberately stopped because he didn't want to go there. That isn't the way God is. See, if his vengeance is really what happens to us and the natural consequences of our choices, then it isn't the way they viewed it. And at the cross, we see vengeance in a very different light. And so Jesus stops short of that because you use words that are common and mean, and mean these things, uh, you are going to be misinterpreted. And so he simply left it out. Then he handed the scroll back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everybody was on him waiting for his sermon because after, after reading the, the prophets, the person who read the prophets was supposed to give a commentary, a pesher, and he didn't do that. <laughs> And then he said, this day has this been fulfilled in your ears. And they wanted to stone him. Throw him over a cliff. Get rid of him. So what this suggests to me is that Jesus understood how they viewed vengeance. And, and this, this fits very well with what we concluded when we did our study of divine wrath in the Bible. I don't know if you remember that far back. I know only two of you were here uh, last last quarter and last year when we we dealt with God's wrath. The thing that I have discovered is that wrath was not originally supposed to be at all in the Bible. It It was not supposed to be there. Genesis, the book of Genesis, does not portray God as angry once. In the case of the flood, he's grieved in the case of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, it doesn't mention his wrath. It doesn't mention God's anger once in the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis sets the stage for the rest of the entire Hebrew Bible. It is the the uh, the pristine preferred voice of God. Everything else is is muddied up by human will and human decisions that necessitate God to talk their language. And if you study anciently the history of divine anger, it is intimately connected to royal anger, the anger of kings, especially those who went out to conquer other nations. Because they went out to conquer in wrath. And wrath became, divine anger and royal anger became a political tool to subjugate people, to oppress them, to be unjust and very abusive 
to other people. That's why Ezekiel is the most angry prophet of the Hebrew Bible. He talks to the people in most angry terms about God. It's because he's talking to people who are hard-hearted and stiff-necked. In fact, God tells him near the beginning of the book, I'm going to make your head hard and, and your neck, and your neck stiff against their hard head and their stiff neck. Um, and he does. I mean, that's, that's why you have that kind of language in Ezekiel. So once you remove the image of God as a king in terms of ancient Near Eastern kingship, in terms of our view of kingship, once, once he becomes the king who rides on a donkey, who is humble, who doesn't come to exact homage, who doesn't come to wield a scepter, who doesn't come to exercise control and power over other people. Once you view God like that, it changes all the metaphors, it changes all the constructs, and it allows the love of God to then work on the heart and life and mind of the person. Any other things? We've, we've come to the end of Isaiah uh, maybe one more aspect. What does it mean to be clothed in garments of salvation and a robe of righteousness? What is, a gar- what is the symbolism of a garment? What does it pertain to in the Old Testament? I'll just tell you where my mind is going. Um, just when we look at ourselves, our, our anatomy, we're soft on the outside and hard on the inside. If you look at um, you know, reptilian creatures, they're hard on the outside and soft on the inside. So I think just our very anatomy is a description of vulnerability. So, and, and Jesus was the most vulnerable of, of all humans. And vulnerability is what establishes um, trust and uh, love. Uh, so I, I look at the garments of righteousness as surrounding ourselves with the same vulnerability mm. that Jesus mm. experienced. And that teaches us and models to us how to love. Hmm. I did an Old Testament study, actually a biblical study, but mostly Old Testament, on garments and clothing and what they represent. And I came to conclude that they represent the person's identity, who they really are. Their Their character, their identity, who they really are. You might say, having said that, Keith, that God wears his heart on the outside. Um, I believe personally that Jesus had the highest level, that when it says he became perfect through his sufferings in Hebrews, that he had the highest level of empathy possible. That's what it means to become perfect. Because it would take that high level of empathy for him to be able to bear the sins of the world and let them crush him from the outside in. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we are amazed at how much you love us and how little we appreciate it, how little we perceive it. We pray that you will open us up and turn our stony hearts into hearts of flesh and our stiff necks into supple necks that can turn our heads toward you and that you will uh, take away our hard heads 
and make us able to see you, to love you, to be vulnerable to you, and to be vulnerable to others. We pray that uh, you will save us from ourselves. For we do not need salvation from you. We need salvation from ourselves. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.